0: Good evening, everybody. Before anything else, I'd particularly like to thank the Poetry Society for their assistance with with organising this whole event. Without their generous support, I don't think we'd have been able to put the event on at all, so thank you very much. Um, Now, Anne Carson's really a a poet who needs no introduction. She's won pretty much every every award going, the Lannan Literary Award, the Pushcart Prize, the Griffin Prize, the T.S. Eliot Prize, a MacArthur Genius Grant. She's been a Guggenheim Fellow... She's taught at Princeton, McGill, uh, New York University and, most importantly, of course, the reason we're all here tonight. She's published 17 impossible to categorise books. Uh, Just just a look at the the subtitles confirms how many genres they they straddle. The Beauty of the Husband, a fictional essay in 12 tangos. Decreation, poetry, essays, opera collaboration and translation especially from the ancient Greek uh, uh, integral to her poetic practice tonight she's going to be reading uh, a medley of wonderful things uh, including some of Red Doc the recently published sequel to her 1998 verse novel Autobiography of Red um, but with more on ice bats Um, (laughs) if you you enjoy the reading uh, please do buy a book afterwards I think we've got the uh, the whole back catalogue here, plus um, this very beautiful uh, limited edition um, signed and numbered print um, that's by Hand and Eye Letter Press in association with the Poetry Society, um, illustrated by um, Anne's husband uh, Robert Curry, and a snip at uh, ten pounds. Um, without further ado, please put your hands together for Anne Carson.
1: Thank you. Thank you for coming. It's really strange to be here because I've seen this room in that photo they have in the LRB, the ad, and it's interesting to be inside the ad. Um, So I think of a reading as a form of gift exchange and I remember when I was A child, the best Christmas gifts to get were the ones where you would open the box and then there were six more smaller boxes inside still to open. So this will be like that. Um, Incoherent, but lots of boxes to open. And I would like to start with um, two short essays. I like um, the essay form for its mixture of discipline and freedom. The first one is something I wrote last winter in my kitchen, um, thinking back to other winters in other kitchens. It's called Merry Christmas from Hegel. It was the year my brother died. I lived up north and had few friends or they all went away. Christmas Day I was sitting in my armchair reading something about Hegel. You will forgive me if you are someone who knows a lot of Hegel or understands it. I do not and will paraphrase badly, but I understood him to be saying that he was fed up with popular criticism of his terrible prose and claiming that conventional grammar with its clumsy dichotomy of subject and verb was in conflict with what he called speculation, speculation being the proper business of philosophy, speculation being the effort to grasp reality in its interactive entirety. The function of a sentence like, reason is spirit, famous Hegel sentence, was not to assert a fact, he said, but to lay reason side by side with spirit, and allow their meanings to tenderly mingle in speculation. I was overjoyed by this notion of a philosophic space where words drift in gentle mutual redefinition of one another, but at the same time wretchedly lonely with all my family dead and here it was Christmas Day. So I put on big boots and coat and went out to do some snow standing. Not since childhood have I done snow standing. I had forgot how astounding it is I went to the middle of a woods fir trees, the teachers of this all around minus 20 degrees in the wind but inside the trees is no wind the world subtracts itself in layers outer sounds like traffic and shoveling vanish inner sounds become audible cracks, sighs, caresses twigs, bird breath The fir trees move hugely. The white is perfectly curved, stunned with itself. Puffs of ice fog and some gold things float up. Shadows rake their motionlessness across the snow with a vibration of other shadow moving crosswise on them, shadow on shadow, in precise velocities, It is very cold, then that too begins to subtract itself. The body chills on its surface, but the core is hot. And it is possible to disconnect the surface, to withdraw to the core, where a ravishing peace flows in. So ravishing that I am unembarrassed to use the word ravishing. And it is not a piece of separation from the senses, but the washing through piece of looking, listening, feeling at the very core of snow, at the very core of the care of snow. It has nothing to do with Hegel, and he would not admire the clumsily conventional sentences in which I have tried to tell about it. But I suspect if I hadn't been trying on the mood of Hegel's particular grammatical indignation that Christmas Day, I would never have gone out to stand in the snow or stayed to speculate with it. Or had the patience to sit down and make a record of speculation as if it were a worthy way to spend an afternoon, a plausible way to change the icy horror of holiday into a sort of homecoming. Merry Christmas from Hegel. And then... This essay is one I wrote for Laurie Anderson, whom you may know. She's an artist, American artist, who does a lot of spectacular things. And last year her dog died, and she um, wrote, um, painted a series of paintings about the dog and the dog's transit through the bardo, which you may know if you're a Buddhist, is the 49 days that separate death from the next life, so the transit from this world to the next world. It was a Buddhist dog, so she made 49 paintings of the dog transiting through the bardo. And um, this essay has nothing to do with the bardo, but I wrote it for her catalog at the art show It's called On the Withness of the Body, part one. I find my seat on the train, stow my bag, sit, wait. Windows black, underground tunnel. A big red-haired man comes down the aisle. Big red beard, red plaid shirt, tight barrel chest. He enters the toilet, shuts the door. Train business continues, aisle traffic, baggage, reading lights, announcements about smoking and luncheon. But a sound is beginning to be heard, like a clown screaming. Wild loops. He must be jumping, throwing back his head, an animal cornered, losing all hope. Muffled at first, then louder, jabbing through the wall. People start to look round, By now he is screaming whole sentence patterns, words not intelligible, some refrains. Is it a child, people are debating. Try the door, does it lock from inside? Did you see him go in? He looked disabled, didn't he? Where's the porter? Long, bleated paragraphs of his life on the other planet are now falling on us, the thin wall fairly billowing. It is hard to read... I get up, go down the aisle, open the door just a crack lights on in there, sound of paper no sobs I close the door and return to my place regular train noise a few moments later the toilet door opens he passes back along the aisle unrolling his sleeves, beaming saying hello to this or that person part two What departs at death is 19 grams, seven-eighths of an ounce, of you shedding a soft blue light. What remains behind is various. Within a year of the passing of Emily Dickinson's dog, Carlo, 1848 to 1866, there were five other Carlos in Amherst and two in novels. Some centuries later, workers digging the Athens metro... Unearth the grave of a dog, its small paws still folded, its collar studded with a row of blue beads. Use a distant brush to paint these things. Do not redip Part three. Oh, look, what a thousand blue-thousand white, thousand blue-thousand white, thousand blue-thousand white, thousand blue-thousand white, thousand blue-thousand white white wind today, and my two arms blowing down the road. (coughs) Moving on. A while ago, I wrote a TV show called Crap Hour. It hasn't been picked up by the major <laughs> networks yet. But anyway, it's about it's a talk show with Samuel Beckett's character Crap as the host, moderator. And he interviews various people, Hegel, Antigone, uh, a ghost. So in this one, he's interviewing Helen of Troy. So you imagine the talk show format with Johnny Carson, crap, the desk, the chair, the sofa. I guess it's just a sofa in the latter program, so just a sofa. Enter Helen of Troy. Crap, what was it like where you grew up? Helen, I remember the rivers. We had four rivers in Argos. Oddly, I went to Troy and four rivers there, too. Crap. A river is a beautiful thing. Helen. At Troy, when the girls came out of the river, their hair had turned to amber. Their tears were amber if they had tears, and girls always have tears, don't they? Crap. What river was that? Helen. The Eridanus. Crap. You like Troy? Helen. Helen. All substances devour each other there. It's what war is. Crap. You caused the war. Helen. I did. Crap. Was it for love? Helen. Yes. Crap. So no regrets? Helen. I saw ghosts on the stairs. I could hardly bear to leave them there. Crap. What ghosts? Helen. The night Troy fell, I saw them like a window pane in flames. Crap. Those weren't ghosts. Helen. Perhaps not. Crap. You tell a lot of lies. <laughs> Helen. Yes. Crap. Is this one? Helen. Yes. Crap. Why lie now? Helen. Just in case. Crap. You're always ready to jump, Helen, like a farm cat. Crap, didn't Homer say that? Helen, Troy wasn't made of gold, you know. Speaking of lies, Homer invented the gold. They all preferred iron for cooking, for weapons. Crap, is this important? Helen, just felt like clearing it up. Oh, look, crap, what? Helen, snow, Snow starting in the trees. Look. Crap. Ah. Snow begins. Helen. My favorite thing was snow falling on the river. Do you feel calm? I do. Crap. Momentarily. Helen. Ask me something else. Crap. What was Paris like? Or do you call him Alexander? Helen. I call him Fuck Fox. adorable little pointy face, but he could so rip you to shreds. Crap. Nice. (laughs) Helen, you write poems? Crap. God, no. (laughs) Helen, you look depressed. Crap. Crap. Have I been asking you the right questions, do you think? Helen, yes. Crap. Don't just say yes. Helen, it is the one thing I can't explain. Crap. What? Helen, how dear are my own limbs to me and how I preserve them. Crap, well, we all do that. Helen, then there's no reason to interview me. Crap, except I hear a kind of howl comes right out the middle of you. Helen, tell you a story. The last day at Troy, they take all the women down to the beach. "'separate them into beautiful and not beautiful. "'The beautiful go off with certain of the Greek commanders. "'The others are told to dig their own graves, which they do, which I watch.'" Crap. "'Go on.'" Helen. "'So along comes a Greek captain, or maybe he was a general. "'The Greeks call everybody king. I never got the the ranks straight.'" Anyway, I'm standing on the wall with my dog, a little rat terrier. I've had him since before the war. Name is Pops. And the captain all of a sudden has Pops by the scruff of the neck and a dagger out saying, "'How about we trade this dog for those women?' And he lays his dagger along Pops' throat. Crap is silent four beats. "'Helen, he offers me an exchange.' Crap is silent, four beats. Helen, I take the dog. Crap is silent, three beats. Homer calls human beings ephemeroi. It means Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't
2: stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states.
1: The ephemeral ones, Helen, yes, crap. Creatures who live but a day, Helen, yes, crap. Maybe that's just about long enough for us, Helen. I'm so not arguing, crap. Short break, don't go away. (laughs) Crap theme song, Helen moves down couch, snow continues to fall. Now, I've got to read from Red Doc, this sort of novel in verse, which is a kind of continuation of another novel in verse, Autobiography of Red, which had two heroes, Geryon and Heracles. This one has two heroes named G, and sad but great, um usually known as sad for short. Garyon, that is G is still a herdsman. He has a herd of musk oxen. And um, Sadit Great is a war veteran and somewhat the worse for wear. So I'm going to read a chapter about G herding his herd at night. Typical night herding songs gallop their rhythms and tell of love. G doesn't usually sing to the herd at night. He may talk to them, listen, stand in the herd, listen. That community, a low purple listening, but with a height to the sound, them listening. They direct it up and out. They stand in a circle facing away from the center, and the long guard hairs hang down to brush their ankles like pines, like queens, like queens dressed in pines. Musk oxen are not, in fact, oxen, not castrated bulls, nor do their glands produce musk. Much is misnomer in our present way of grasping the world. But pines do always seem queenly as they sway so grand and anciently from the sky to the ground. Motion is part of listening. As the night goes on, let's say he's there for a number of hours, the motion changes. At first they just shudder a bit like any large entity come to rest, but gradually, imperially, they begin swaying. Then as one rhythm they pass the sway from shape to shape around the circle its amplitude increasing, its warmth rising from knees to hearts to eyes, its pressures rolling across the large loose joints of the shoulders and down the long bones of the hips, until at some point, with a phrasing as simple as a perfect aphorism, one of them spins up off its shanks and performs a 360-degree spin in air and returns to place slotting itself into the undulation of the others as firmly as temptation into, I can resist anything but. He slips from thought to thought, wild, wild, wildness. Wildness does surely attract him, although what he knows about it is not much. He knows with the oxen that they prefer common gorse to willow shoots and can Balance the top heaviness of their bodies by plaiting their feet as they walk. while with sad he knows don't mention war play. Funny word war play. Never says war or warfare. I've seen a lot of war play, he'd say. War play had me pumped those years. Tip of the spear, flip switch inside. She hit the ground, 75, saw the white bag, 75 bullets, tore her head off, I saw her hand. I wasn't going to tell anyone back home about, oh, it found its way out, it surfaced. I had a tan when I came home, no wounds, no cuts, everyone kissed me. Sure, I sat by the fire, I talked to the old man. There were the smells, the bone beneath, sweat broke out on me at breakfast, I didn't expect to come home, that was not in the plan. Some point I guess the brain cells just give out. You read a hundred military manuals, you won't find the word kill, they trick you into killing. You get over it, it's okay, you have to. Fear not tolerated. Take you out back and shoot you, they say. Her eyeglasses in the grass. Standard questionnaire, fine, just say fine. Numb yourself wireframe eyeglasses. Does it feel good at first? Yes. Play, guns, fire, animals. You know the Carthaginians like to use oxen for night fighting. I'm talking about Hannibal, I'm talking about the Battle of Aguirre Falernus, two hundred seventeen BC. Oxen are like tanks, but more frightening. They tie lit torches to the horns and stampede them toward the enemy. The Romans panicked. Some ran into the herd, some got knocked off the path to the crags below. Others tried to retreat and were lost in the tundra, never seen again. But what about, I'm asking, what happens when the torches burn down to the horn, to the hair, to the head, to the bone beneath? So much human cruelty is simply incidental, is simply brainless. Simply no common sense. You could take the entirety of the common sense of humans and put it in the palm of your hand and still have room for your dick. I shall pass over the major adventures of the novel in order that you buy it. Towards the end, G is called home from his adventuring with Sad But Great because his mother is dying, and um, time passes. So here is a chapter helpfully called Time Passes. A tactic stolen, as you may remember, directly from Virginia Woolf to The Lighthouse, but there its furniture that talks here its time itself time passes time does not pass time all but passes time usually passes time passing and gazing time has no gaze time as perseverance time as hunger time in a natural way time when you were 6 the day a mountain mountain time time i don't remember Time for a dog in an alley caught in the beam of your flashlight. Time not a video. Time as paper folded to look like a mountain. Time smeared under the eyes of the miners as they rattled down into the mine. Time if you are bankrupt. Time if you are Prometheus. Time if you are all the little tubes on the roots of a gorse plant sucking greenish-black moistures up into new scribbled continents. Time it takes for the postal clerk to apply her lipstick at the back of the post office before the supervisor returns. Time it takes for a cow to tip over. Time in jail. Time as overcoats in a closet. Time for a herd of turkeys skidding and surprised on ice. All the time that has soaked into the walls here. Time between the little clicks. Time compared to the wild, fantastic silence of the stars. Time for the man at the bus stop standing on one leg to tie his shoe. Time taking night by the hand and trotting off down the road. Time passes, oh boy. Time got the jump on me, yes it did. So he goes home to visit his mom in the hospital. He brings lilacs from the bush by the corner of her house to which she will probably not return this time or ever, and he leans his face into them. The smell plunges up, a vertical smell, wet, purple, unvanquished. Her door is shut. The ceiling tracks flicker. No radios, no barbecues, don't honk, a sign he saw on the way to the hospital, his mind running like a dog off its chain. Certain things not decided have been decided. He arrived on the day after her surgery, has seen this corridor at all hours, notices again a hesitancy in the light as if it were trying not to shock you with how scant it is. He can hear the oxygen machine through the door. It shunts on, runs a while, shunts off. He enters. When he is there, they lift the stones together. The stones are her lungs. A few days later, same hospital. a casual solitude, he and she Oxygen machine is wheeled in and hooked up Her eyelids flutter but do not open He sits, the room is hot, there is a smell Does Proust have a verb for this? This struggle she faces now her one-time terrible date with night First date, last date, soulmate Old song lyrics scamper in him He moves the chair back to the window. She's counting my soulmate gasps of make my heart beat at a fast rate, oxygen. He dozes off. Waking to her avid gaze, wide open, she holds in one hand the makeup mirror and the other a pair of tweezers. Here, she whispers, lifts tweezers. Maybe you can do it taps the end of her chin. He hesitates, shrugs, pulls up his chair, takes the makeup mirror and peers close. A beard of very tiny, white, translucent hairs all over her chin. He moves the oxygen tube aside and gingerly plucks a few, plucks a few more. There are hundreds, thousands. He hates waiting for her to wince. She doesn't wince. It's all right, Ma, you can hardly see them, he says. Her eyes fall. Okay, never mind. Sadly, she takes the tweezers back. I look awful, don't I? No, you look like my ma. Now she winces. In later years, this is the one memory he wishes would go away and not come back. And the reason he cannot bear her dying is not the loss of her, which is the future, but that dying puts the two of them now into this nakedness together that is unforgivable. They do not forgive it. He turns away. This roaring air in his arms, she is released. And I'll read the final Greek chorus of the story. The chorus is called Wife of Brain. Mothers in summer, mothers in winter, mothers in autumn, mothers in spring. Mothers at altitude, mothers in solitude, mothers as platitude, mothers in spring. Mothers banking their shots, mothers grackling their throats, mothers dumped from their boats in spring. Mothers as ice, or when they are nice, no one more nice in spring. Mothers ashamed and ablaze and clear at the end as they are, as they almost all are, and then mothers don't come around again in spring. That's the end of that book, and now we're really sad, so don't like people to go home sad, so we're going to do two more small things. Interactive short talks. What is a short talk, you might well ask. A short talk is a 13-second lecture on this or that topic. For example, short talk on Gertrude Stein about 9.30 p.m. Well, you know, what an idea. Today has ended. <laughs> So, but the interactive ones are way more fun for you because you get to join in. So, I say a part, you say a part. It comes together to form a short meaning. And the first one, your word is deciduous with a question mark at the end. I think you should practice. One, two, three. Deciduous. Fantastic. Ready? Ready? Short Talk on Reading Some fathers hate to read but love to take the family on trips. Some children hate trips but love to read. Funny how often these find themselves passengers in the same automobile. (laughs) I glimpsed the stupendous clear-cut shoulders of the Rockies from between paragraphs of Madame Bovary. Cloud shadows roved languidly across her huge rock throat, traced her fur flanks. And since those days, I do not look at hair on female flesh without thinking... <laughs> lovely. Now you see how it works. We can do a harder one. So in this one, you have two parts. So we'll just sort of divide down the middle here. Chorus A... Your line is, let's buy it, with an exclamation at the end. One, two, three. Let's buy it. Fine. (laughs) Chorus B, your line is, what a bargain, exclamation at the end. One, two, three. What a bargain. Super. Okay, ready? Don't forget your line. (laughs) Short talk on the sensation of airplane takeoff. Well, you know, that could be true love, running towards my life with its arms up, yelling, Let's fight What's <laughs> Thank you, and good night.
0: <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop
1: on iTunes.